This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. This is the podcast where, as you probably know, Mike and I watch movies separately and then talk about them for the first time. Before we start, we just want to give a big shout-out to all of our listeners in the United Kingdom. We have a, we have a great, great uptick, Mike, of, of listeners from the UK, as you know. And we just thank want to you. say thank you. Yeah, thank you to all of our listeners out there. We're thrilled that you're out there. And so, in, in homage to the UK, we're doing a second Powell and Pressburger film today. We're thrilled. And from what Mike's telling me, we may even do a third Powell Pressburger movie. But today we're going to be talking about Black Narcissus from 1947. This was a Mike pick after we saw the red shoes and Mike said, let's do another one. Mike first texted me and said, let's do Black Narcissus. We each watched it. Mike, in the first segment, we always talk about our overall impressions. Go. Speaking of movies that shouldn't work on paper, uh, this sounds like 100% something I would never watch. One of the reasons to watch it, though, okay, in case you don't like great acting, you don't like great scripts. You don't like strange endings. You don't like haunting visuals. No part of this movie was filmed in the Himalayas. This is all painted backdrops, which is absolutely incredible and breathtaking because the number one thing you'd say about your overall impression of the movie is the beautiful scenery. Uh, it's not scenery. It's all created in a London soundstage, which I think is is wonderful. Apart from not working on paper, there's something there's something indelible and really shocking about this movie. I know a lot of movie contemporary movies that are controversial, but I don't know any that are shocking. This movie has a legitimate shock in it. Maybe one of like a handful of legitimate shocks that I can remember from any films that I've ever watched. And so I'm really deeply impressed by that. My overall impression of this movie is that it starts out uh, like a heist movie. It kind of, it's kind of like Ocean Eleven, which is that the, the nuns are supposed to do this thing and they have a different nun for each kind of uh, of capacity. It's exactly like, you know, if um, in Ocean's Eleven, if you were picking a safe cracker and you saw the safe cracker, you know, blow up in a safe. But with nuns, um, which, which you know, was more interesting. I thought the um, same thing. I'm sorry. I thought to myself, this is like the seven samurai. Like we're going to get the team together and then we're going to go do this mission. Like Briani's the doctor and Philippa does the garden. That's exactly right. And then the movie lulls you to sleep. Some things happen. It's cute. But what it is, is it's it is it slow burning. But boy, is it. Um, yeah. It never stops. It just slows to a crawl, but never loses its tension. And I, I have a lot of trouble thinking of another movie that doesn't lose tension, but also doesn't sag, but is able to just kind of turn down the velocity and then pick it back up again. And, and, and what that says to me is directorial control, script control. These guys are in perfect total control of everything that happens in this film from beginning to end. It can go whatever tempo they want. Anything can happen that they want. They just, they can do anything. When it began, 
my wife looked at me and said, oh, is this going to be like the sound of music? And I said, um, no. <laughs> and, God. But but that's the setup, right? Yeah, that that's is the, the setup. setup right? Is how do you solve a problem like Maria? You send her to to turn the harem uh, in into an offshoot of the convent. So my other joke, and when it started, was I made a joke to myself: is that when it first begins and the story's set up, I thought to myself, just sitting there on my couch, I thought, yeah, man, this place sounds like the Overlook Hotel. Then I hear the word caretaker for for Angu Aya, and I thought to myself, you know that line: you've always been the caretaker here. And then I heard the line, well, she lives here alone with the ghosts of bygone days. And then I'm starting to think there's no way that Stanley Kubrick hadn't seen this movie a thousand times. That made me say, hmm. But the more that it went on, the more and more that the convent reminded me of the, the Overlook Hotel, right? Like, remember in The Shining? Do you remember Jack, what's Jack Nicholson's plan when he goes to the Overlook? What's his high goal? He's got to work on a new writing project. Yes, that's right. He's going to write his novel, right? And isolation and no alcohol is just what I need to help me accomplish my goals. So the nuns think the same thing, right? Especially Sister Clotta, right? It's my first real responsibility. We're going to go out there. And the trick is that they cannot escape those ghosts, right? In The Shining, Jack can't escape the ghosts that are, you know, quote unquote within him. But um, remember that the convent was originally built as a harem. All these kind of ghosts start arising within the nuns. The ghosts of their past lives start to rise up. There's that part where, or no, it was, it was Philippe in the garden says, I've had thoughts now I, I haven't had for 21 years. And Sister Claudia says, well, you just have to work harder in the garden. And she shows her blistered hands that the ghosts of their past lives start to rise in this place. And then I thought to myself, all right, there's more of a link here between this convent and the Overlook Hotel than I thought at first. And I'll, I'll steal a bonus moment because it's so beautiful what happens to Sister Bryony that she works as hard as she can possibly work. And she's supposed to be planting vegetables, but of course she only grows flowers, flowers. Which, which seems so wasteful, right? It, it seems so self-indulgent. But it, it turns out to be the thing that brings the most joy to, to the people who live around the convent. I, I think that that's, a, that that's a beautiful moment and a beautiful symbol in the middle of the film. It's actually easy to overlook and forget that was even part of the movie. That's what tight control uh, yeah. the, these two have over this script. There's, you can pick any moment at random, and it's, and it's a meditation on the, on the themes of the film as a whole. All right, so let's talk about our moments in part two. So welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments in the film or moments we think epitomize, you know, the experience of seeing the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? So my moment is the strange dance for no reason uh, that's that's done by the, the girl that they take in um, from the village that right. They bring her to the convent to try to contain her sensuality. But she breaks out, but she breaks out dance, dancing for no reason played uh, by Gene Simmons right. uh, not the guy from Kiss, uh, the other Gene Simmons. Correct. Uh, and of course, she ends up seducing the young general uh, and taking him away with her. And, and there's an untold story in the background of this entire movie, which is the story of the, the prince uh, and the maidservant girl, which is taken as kind of a byword to everybody else uh, in the film, but is kind of like an, an invisible thread that runs through the rest of the movie. And I found that I found that very interestingly contrasted with also the scene of the holy man. Like I'm going to steal another bonus moment, Go ahead. which is uh, when um, when the nun runs away in her dress and her lipstick uh, and they go to the holy man. Uh, Sister Clauda says, ask him if he's seen a girl run by. And um, the boy that they take in says, oh, he wouldn't notice that lemony. That would be like that would be nothing to him. And so I think that this film does a great job balancing the parallel 
between uh, worldliness and total abstinence, right? Because you, you, it's, it's obvious that the dance for no reason that she does, the, the dancing to the music that only she can hear is a kind of negative worldliness to the nuns, but they put the holy man there who's rejected everything so that you understand what the outer limits on both sides are. And I think it, it would be really easy to fall into the trap of just having the sensual dance for no reason, or you could call it the exuberance of youth, right? Cause she's obviously she's dancing because she's young and she's healthy and the scent of the mountains is everywhere. It, why would you not be exultant? And it's, it's obvious that that's right. That's what their order um, in their order. They tell you that, that you have to re up every year, right? Yes. You have to, you have to re reject the world on an annual basis. And so they have a character in there. Who's p- honestly purely just a symbol of the world and then you have a symbol of, of utter rejection. And so it creates a sense of ambiguity for where they sit in between. It's never intended to be clear to the viewer, I think, and it's never intended to be clear to those in the order. And I, I think that the, it would be a lesser movie. There, there are some people I think that would watch this movie and, and say, why is that character in there? Why am I being told this? But I think it has to do with the delicate moral balance of, of the entire film. Yeah, and that, and that sister Clara, as as the main character, so to, you know, the one, she is the main character gets gets she moves back and forth on the number line, where she starts to have the memories of Khan, and you start to learn like why she joined the order, and that's kind of funny. Like that's what I meant by like her her own ghosts start to resurface. Bonus question: What fifteen minute film fanatics film does her random dance remind me of? Dan- dancing for no reason, exultant in youth. I give up. It reminds me of the Wicker Man of the dance oh, for no reason the, the music scene banging banging on the wall because that's that's what i feel is, is going on of course it, i love the wicker man but in a lesser way or yeah. maybe in a, a more overstated way than the subtleties of the of this film but it's the same thing right she's she, they you can put her in the castle all you want but she's banging on the wall she's channeling the ghosts of the harem that it used to be okay so dan what's what's your moment So my moment has to do with, let's talk about Mr. Dean for a minute. You know, when I was watching this film, I thought to myself, if this were remade today, he will be played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He'll be perfect to play that. It's funny how he's like the, he's like Jeff Probst is the, from survivors, like the poor man's, the poor man's Mr. Dean. But I want to talk about what Mr. Dean does to them. So, so you have these, these nuns looking at each other and Rose spies, Sister Clotta talking to Mr. Dean and, and they keep getting, you know, jealous of each other. And there's that moment after the shocking moment where we see Rose in the red dress, which is just like a great, great, it's like a jump scare. It's a moral jump scare. Unbelievable. It's so out of the blue. It's it, it's so great. So there's that great moment where Sister Clotta makes her sit down and they're sitting at the end of the other each end of the table. And Rose has out the lipstick. She's put on a red lipstick. And then Sister Clotta has the Bible. So it reminded me of what you just said about worldliness and abstinence, right? Like these are the two directions you can go. You could either just say, forget it. I'm not re-upping. I'm putting on my red dress and I'm running down there to his bachelor pad, or I'm going to go full on restraint and control myself like Sister Clotta and tell everyone else what to do. So I said before that this reminded me of, of The Shining, but as I start watching it, this was a very fun thing that happened in my mind was it also reminded me very much of The Turn of the Screw. You have this person who's never been given any authority that the governess in turn of the screw who has to go to a, a foreign land. She has to go to the estate where the kids are here. She goes to, she goes to the Himalayas and she has to kind of like repress all of her sexual feelings that manifest themselves in other ways. And of course, as I'm watching this, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's really interesting. And then it hits me, of course, that Deborah Kerr who plays sister Clotta 
also plays the governess in The Innocence, which is the terrific film about the turn of the screw. So that was like a really, really you know fun moment. This is something I didn't want to touch on until we got to our moments, but the reveal with Sister Rose, which is like the reveal yeah. of the movie, reminds you from a strategic perspective, you say, okay, why make this film so long? If you can maintain tension no matter what you do, why would you make it so long? And it's because the film hypnotizes you into forgetting what street clothes even looked like yeah. into what a dress even looked like. Because if this movie, if this were, you know, if you got the Michael special, which is like a 90 minute in and out, um, there would be nothing shocking about the reveal. It, it would be great. It would still work, but it wouldn't be visually shocking to the viewer. This movie hypnotizes you into forgetting what any world outside the film looks like. And then bam, she brings Britain to the Himalayas. And it's very jarring yeah. in, in a way that's just indelible. That's great because it, it's the movie is only, I think, like an hour and 48 minutes or an hour and 50 minutes long. It feels longer. And usually that's an insult to a film to say, oh, it's, it was 90 minutes, but it felt like it was three hours. But that's an insult here. And I love what you just said about being hypnotized because you watch the costumes, like the costumes of the young general and the costumes that Gene Simmons has on and what the, what the, the you know, the wise man is wearing. Like, like you are so um, taken to another place by what everybody's wearing and how technicolor it is and that beautiful blue room and that there. And then so when you see something just like a red dress from civilian life. It is jarring. Okay, so in part three, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. We usually skip the title because we don't we don't typically choose a movie that has a symbolic title. But Dan, let's talk real briefly about what The Black Narcissus is. Yes, and then, we, of course, we have to talk about the ending on, on the bell tower. Well, I took it that the title is, you know, it's, it's the scent that, that is on the handkerchief that they start to smell. And I took it as a reminder. It's a, it's a, it's a tease of the outside world. It reminded me of, we've all seen the old cartoons where somebody is cooking something or baking a pie and you see like the, the smell tendrils go into someone's nose and the bear, Yogi Bear smells it or, or Bugs Bunny or something. So it reminded me of that, like it's a scent of the outside world. And of course it's a scent. The point of the black narcissus scent is only for pleasure. It does, it does, it's not the scent of incense. It doesn't, it doesn't lead you to, to higher things. It's, it's, it's like perfume or cologne or something like that, for lack of a better word. But I think it's something that it's a sensory pleasure versus a spiritual one. And when they tease the prince, do you remember what he says? Don't you think it's unbearably common to smell of oneself? And so that I think that this movie is a movie of ambiguous alternatives. It would be very simple for the movie to take the position that, that the black narcissist is something a delicate or self-indulgent, the prince is the one that asks the question, what's the alternative? And I think that the movie is able to maintain a tension of ambiguity in the center, just like um, we talked about the sensuality of Mr. Dean right. or the tension kind of in the, in the part of the movie. I don't want to say that sags, but is held in suspension. It's about a 50 minute period of the nuns hold, trying to hold the status quo together but again, it's, it's quite ambiguous because the world is trying to intrude in and it seems like you have two alternatives and none of them are good, which is utter acceptance or utter rejection. And the, the film doesn't allow you to endorse either. And so I, I think that the, the symbol of the Black Narcissus as the perfume or standing for the title is perfect because on the one sense, yeah, the, the nuns say, well, I, I never use scent. I would never use perfume. It's a wasteful indulgence. But at the other end, he's right. It uh, it is unbearably common to smell of oneself. 
Well, it reminds me also what about we talked about when we did the red shoes is that there's all these alternatives and who's right. Like, should you sacrifice everything for your art or should you, no, you shouldn't have to sacrifice or you should, you should use the, the, the rough material of your own life to make music out of like that, 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 and, and again, we've talked in this podcast before about all the mistakes. We love to talk about the mistakes that movies could have made big, biggest mistake this movie could have made would have been to turn sister Clada into like, um, you know, um, nurse ratchet in one form of the cuckoo's nest, but she's not, she's like a sympathetic character. Which is why the holy man anchors the whole thing because he he's gone to the furthest logical extreme. And so essentially he is actually morally holding down the fort (laughs) for everybody or representing an extreme. And at the same, by the same token, when we see Rose's transformation and, and she becomes the sick Rose, so to speak, to quote William Blake, I mean, she is, we, we are, we are aghast and we're frightened of her, but we don't scorn her because we understand what's happened to her. Right. I mean, not like, like the movie doesn't, the movie doesn't villainize any, any of these people. And I think it would have been very, very easy to make one of them, to make the whole movie be about Sister Clotta becoming power hungry or something. Why do you think Rose wants to kill Sister Clotta? Well, first she's a rival and she's, you know, she's a She sees her as a rival for Dean. And I don't think she's entirely wrong about that because clearly sister Clotta loves talking to Dean. Oh, uh, just side note. Um, when someone says, I love you and the response is, well, you can just forget about it. That is my favorite response. Maybe uh, since Han Solo said, uh, I know. I think that at the end she goes out there because she's, I think Rose has hit her limit. I mean, she can't, it, it, of course, another allusion I'll make now was it reminded me of the end of Vertigo. You have nuns in high places, right? And, and, and certainly you have, again, more ghosts. So I think that Rose can't go back and she's furious with Sister Claude for, for what she's become and she resents all her authority. And it's just, I don't think it's like a premeditated thing. I think it's almost like, she, it's like, it's, it's almost like the end of Vertigo where she goes out there and she says that moment and she doesn't want to hear the, the tell tolling of the bell anymore i will say what when she climbs the stairs oh. that is scarier to me than when the mom is finally possessed in hereditary, hereditary you know, i thought you know the, the same moment? thing i thought the same exact thing mike when when she sees her out of the corner of her eye i thought to myself that's tony collette on the ceiling in hereditary and but but with a but with a better reveal just just scuttling around right it's it's like kafka it's a human transformed yeah. into a bug and Rose is so when Rose opens that door at the end and her, she's like so pale and she looks at her, gives her the thousand yard stare. I mean, that Rose is scarier in that red dress possessed by um, lust and anger and frustration than Tony Collette is when she's possessed by, you know, the, the king of hell. Now, d- does that sound to you? like a movie from the late forties produced in the UK on a no. single soundstage. Everything. No, it we're does not. I, I don't understand where these two came from, but boy, did they? And I'm so glad that they did. Did they ever. So watch black Narcissus. If you haven't seen it in a while, thank you again to our, our, our listeners in the UK. We will keep the, keep the titles coming. You can follow us on Twitter at one five M I and film and also on Letterboxd at, at one five M I and film. Give us suggestions, give us recommendations. And again, thank you so much for listening. We cannot turn down a listener suggestion. We have a couple sitting in our inbox right now. It's going to be a very interesting season. Thanks everybody. 